Join me in Isaiah chapter 42 this evening. And I want to actually read here from Isaiah's prophecy in chapter 42. I think what I want to do is just uh, read down uh, through verse 9. We're not going to look at all of that for sake of time. I like to cut the study a little short as we typically do and spend a little extra time in worship. Probably majority of the time we'll just look at verses 1 through 4. But I just... Just want to let God's word speak uh, in those fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, and ninth verses as well. So let me read, beginning in verse one. He says, Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. He will not cry out nor raise his voice, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoking flax he will not quench. He will bring forth justice for truth. He will not fail nor be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastland shall wait for his law. Thus says God the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread forth the earth that which comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness and will hold your hand. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentiles, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the prison, those who sit in darkness from the prison house. I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory I will not give to another nor my praise to carved images. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I declare before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Here in Isaiah chapter 42, we get another beautiful prophecy of Jesus or the Messiah as they would know him from an Old Testament perspective. And we know that this is a messianic prophecy for certain, not just because we can deduce that from what we read and what it seems to speak of Christ, but we know that for certain because the scripture confirms that for us because in Matthew chapter 12, they're the same Holy Spirit who inspired Isaiah to record these things. They're the Spirit of God who's inspiring Matthew as he's writing the gospel in Matthew chapter 12 prompts Matthew to directly quote this specific prophecy in its entirety and to attribute this prophecy directly to Jesus. So we know for absolute certain that this is indeed a prophecy of Jesus, that it's describing Jesus, that God is wanting to call our attention to him, to think upon him, to tell us things about Jesus. And again, as we're preparing our hearts to celebrate communion, Jesus tells us whenever we eat this bread and drink this cup, he says, do this in remembrance of me. So communion is a time, not just of personal examination, but it's a time of reflection. And I think specifically a time of really reflecting upon the person of Christ and that we would recognize it's time to do that. And I love the way, therefore, this prophecy opens up. It tells us there in verse one, behold, and then my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights. But you notice the word behold, exclamation point. That word behold really is, is a term that means 
to stop, to, to pause or to slow down. The Holy Spirit is saying here, God is asking us to stop and to pause in order to consider and to think over something. If, if you want somebody to really kind of slow down, maybe they're not paying attention. Wait, look, slow down here. But, you know, just behold this. You know, in other words, pay attention. How can you overlook how wonderful this is? I mean, behold you know, how good your parents have been to you or, or behold how good you really have it in comparison to other people. And that's the idea of the, the word behold. And here the Holy Spirit is, is in a sense exhorting us to stop, to pause, to, to slow down and to think over something. And what he's asking us to slow down and to behold or to think upon is Jesus himself and to take time to really consider Jesus. And like in every other area of our life, we say the words familiarity breeds contempt. And I'd be the first to say that as a Christian, I think it's easy sometimes as we get comfortable with our Christian experience and the Christian dynamics and we become more comfortable with the faith that, that sometimes we can be guilty of sort of just failing to stop sometime and to slow down and, and really to just appreciate Jesus for who he is and, and for what he's really like and what he has done for us. We just kind of get caught up in the Christian and we lose Christ and the person of Christ within it who is the whole purpose and reason why we're experiencing everything that we are. So here the, the Spirit of God is saying, look, behold this, stop, think about, consider Jesus, this is asking us, and it tells us some things about Jesus, particularly these verses are speaking of him predominantly in his first coming or his earthly ministry when he came to this earth initially and God sent him to provide salvation for us and to reveal what God is like to us. And notice the first thing we're told about Jesus, the Messiah. He says, my servant whom I uphold. I find it very interesting here. The Holy Spirit, of all the terms he could have used, chooses to identify Jesus in his earthly life and ministry as a servant. If you think of all the things that he could have been called, I mean, he was a wonderful teacher. He was an incredibly powerful miracle worker. He was, a, you know, he, he was a healer. He was a prophet. I mean, all that Jesus was, a leader, a ruler, a shepherd, and yet what the Holy Spirit wants to drive home to us is that God looked upon his son and called him a servant, the greatest servant who ever lived. The Spirit of God identifies Jesus in that way. And Jesus himself identified himself in that capacity. Mark 10, verse 45, Jesus said of himself these words. He said, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So above all else, Jesus was a servant. And really that is... Honestly, quite astonishing if you think about, again, we just read the verses, but if you glance back over, for example, again to verse 5, where it's speaking about God and who was Jesus. He was God, right? He was God in the flesh. He was God who became a man, God incarnate. But what does the Bible tell us about God? Look at it there in verse 5. He's a God who created the heavens. He spread forth the earth. He gives breath to everyone on the planet and spirit to those who walk in it. So here's this incredible description of the power of God as a creator, the giver of life, the sustainer of life. I mean, just reminding us how awesome God is, how incredible God is in his power and his rulership. And, and yet the Bible reminds us that this God condescended in such humility that he came to this earth 
and took the body of the flesh of a man and lived among us and not just lived among us and sought to do nothing else but draw worship from us. But when he came, he came to be a servant to humanity. And, and in such humility, he condescended. The Bible tells us in Philippians 2 that he humbled himself and become obedient to death, even the death of the cross. Jesus came and lived among us as a servant. I mean, I think that's why Jesus emphasized what he did in Mark 10:45. The Son of Man did not come to be served, though he deserved to be served, correct? If anybody deserved to be bowed down to, to be submitted to, to be catered to, to be cared for, to... It was Jesus. He was God living among humanity. God is worthy as a king. He is worthy of worship and submission and servitude and, and all those things. But Jesus said, but I didn't come for that. That wasn't what my interest was. My interest was not to be served, but my interest was to serve and to serve other people. And when we look at the life of Jesus, the ultimate form, of course, of his servanthood is that he lived sinlessly and died sacrificially. That is the epitome of his servanthood, that he actually served to the point of death where he sacrificed himself completely. And when you look at the life of Christ, that is exactly what he was. He was a servant. He sought to serve the will of God and do all those things that please the Father. And Jesus served in that way. His, his intention, his aim was always, I always do those things that please the Father. He never served his own self-interests. He always served the will of the Father and wanted to serve the will of God. And more than that, Jesus lived as a servant among fellow humanity, which is quite honestly the thing that's so sobering and that is the way he related to people. We think of John chapter 13 and here is again, the very God who created all things, the very God who gives life and breath and sustains the life and heartbeat and breath of every living soul. And what is he doing? He, he in the most lowest form of humble servitude, is washing the filth and the dirt off his disciples' feet who he has created and sustained and, and keeps alive and, and not only, again, serving his father, but a servant in the sense of how he related to people, the humility, the servitude in the way in which Jesus was. So he calls him my servant. He says, whom I uphold. In other words, reminding us how the father was the one always upholding Jesus in his earthly ministry. And his earthly ministry was difficult. It wasn't easy. As we look at his life and his ministry in the Gospels, it had many challenges to live in the way that he lived and to love in the way that he loved and to serve in the way that he served. But notice the father was the one throughout his whole ministry who was upholding him in his service and was upholding him in the things that he would do. And what a great consolation because the Father does the same for us when we make our lives available to him and to be servants of Christ. Sometimes it's difficult, but the wonderful thing is the Father will uphold you. And he'll uphold us and support us as we serve him on behalf of his son. He goes on to then say of him, he's my elect one or my chosen one, your translation may say, in whom, and this is very beautiful, God says of him, in whom my soul delights. Now, it's a wonderful thing when you can delight the soul of God. The word delight there indicates uh, to find pleasure in. You know, if you uh, have children and when you have them and you're enjoying them and you just delight in your children or then it seems that it's almost sometimes easier because you're not also having to raise and train and spank them and discipline them when you're a grandparent. And I'm not there yet, thankfully by the grace of God. Uh, probably not too far away, but, but, I, but I envision how that can be all the more wonderful to just then delight in a grandchild because you just get to enjoy them and then send them home for all the hard stuff. 
So, so, right? I mean, that's kind of how it works. If you're a grandparent, you probably can, you know, that you can really just delight in them and find pleasure in them. And, and this is the idea here uh, of somebody just, you know, a, a grandparent, a, a father, a mother, just delighting in their own child, finding such pleasure and fulfillment in them. And here the Bible is saying that the father is saying regarding Jesus in him, my soul finds great pleasure. I'm pleased with him. Again, as we think of the life of Jesus as it was lived and how at occasion in his life and ministry the father validated that very thing from heaven remember Jesus's baptism that was expressed as the heavens parted and the father spoke from heaven what did he say this is my beloved son my chosen son in whom I am well pleased and keep in mind the father was saying that of Jesus before he ever even began his public ministry so he had never done one miracle he'd never done one teaching he had never done in a sense any public service or any aspect of his public ministry but the father was well pleased with him because what was he pleased with he was pleased with the way that he lived his life in humility and righteousness and in obedience to his father and honoring his father and then later on in Jesus's life at the transfiguration when he was transfigured before Peter James and John we see the father again parting the heavens and again restating the exact same thing this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And Jesus brought tremendous pleasure to the Father. And let me say this, how wonderful, I want you to think about this, it is that Jesus' life brought pleasure and pleased God the Father. That is absolutely wonderful for this reason, because oftentimes my life doesn't please God. Oftentimes, maybe the way I behave or the way I speak or what I think I have to be honest to say that there are times when my life hasn't always been pleasing to God. And there are things that I've done in my past and it, 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 that I'll probably do in the future that probably won't be pleasing to God. But I find incredible encouragement to realize, thank goodness Jesus' life pleased God. Thank goodness Jesus' life delighted God because I know positionally by faith the Bible teaches as a Christian that my life is hidden in Christ. So that when God looks upon my life, that at times practically and the way it's performed and lived out, at times I may do things that aren't too pleasing because I fail and you stumble and we all make mistakes and we don't always live pleasing to God. But how wonderful if your faith is in Jesus to know that you're accepted in him. And God the Father finds pleasure with Jesus' life and therefore he can find pleasure and satisfaction in the way that he relates to your life. Our text goes on to speak of Jesus. God says of him, I have put my spirit upon him. And again, notice Jesus was God incarnate, but notice still yet, even in his earthly life and in his humanity, there was the spirit's anointing that came upon Jesus' life. That Jesus did the ministry that he did in the power and the anointing of the Spirit of God. And here the Bible is reminding us of that, that as a man, the Spirit would be put upon him. The idea is the baptism or the anointing of the Spirit. And look at now, as we go on in our verses, the resulting effects of Jesus in his life as a man. What were the resulting effects of the Spirit of God being upon him? Because a lot of times we hear things about baptized with the spirit the spirit's really upon somebody's life and, and instantly our mind tends to think of of lots of other things you know we think of you know power and authority the spirit's on somebody boy they're like a you know a charge just they're just they're, they're going to be some force of power and wrecking ball but i want you to notice something this says the spirit of god was upon jesus 
And look at the manifestations that came forth as a result of the Spirit being upon him as a man in his perfect earthly ministry. The first thing we're told is it says, he will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. Now, the idea they're bringing forth justice means to bring forth what's right or righteous, to do something that's in the best interest, to help somebody else. And, and here, I think this speaks of the incredible love and the unconditional love of Jesus that he did not just limit his ministry to the Jews, but he was willing to do whatever it took to bring forth what was just and best and right for all peoples from all nations, from every tribe and tongue and kindred and race and ethnicity, that Jesus was interested and has incredible love for everybody. And that unconditional love, again, because the Bible says that the fruit of the Spirit is love. And because the Spirit was upon Jesus, love was emanating forth from him. And because of that, he wanted to do whatever would be best and helpful to reach not just one small sphere of of people, but to reach all peoples, no matter where they're at, what their condition, pagan Gentiles. His love was incredible and it made him reach out to all. Verse 2 then tells us another thing as a result of the Spirit being upon Jesus. It says also of him and his life, he will not cry out nor raise his voice nor calls his voice to be heard in the street and i think this here speaks of how jesus in his nature was gentle rather than forceful now again keep in mind this is jesus christ the son of god god in human flesh who has all authority over heaven and earth If you remember, there was an occasion or two where Jesus' authority was very evident. For example, when they came looking for Jesus, remember when they wanted to arrest him? And they said, you know, where's Jesus of Nazareth? And all he had to say was, I am. And the people just fell over backwards. Do you remember that occasion in the Gospels there? And, And just with his spoken word, he just knocked people back off of their feet because of the incredible power that was within him. The strength and the authority was there. But yet, in the way that Jesus lived out his life... As the Spirit was upon him, that incredible power was within what we would call meekness, which is authority under control. The the one autobiographical statement, again, we've said before Jesus made of himself, Matthew chapter 11, he says, I am meek and lowly in heart. And, and, And here we have another reference to that of Jesus. It says that, notice, he was gentle, not forceful. It says he will not cry out nor raise his voice nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. The idea here is that Jesus was not like earthly kings or earthly rulers who would dominate people by force. They would make sure people heard what they had to say. They would make sure that their words were respected and received and there was no other ultimatum. And earthly kings would rule with tremendous force. But Jesus, when he came as God in flesh, he wasn't aggressive. He wasn't assertive. There was nothing forceful about the way he behaved or spoke. Jesus wasn't seeking to self-promote or manipulate people. He wasn't causing his voice to be heard out in the streets. The the idea there, again, is is, is Jesus was not into self-promotion or manipulating people or or kind of, if you would, working the streets to draw attention to himself and doing what he could to have something going on to get people. In fact, what was Jesus often doing? It was the exact opposite. He would do miracles and then tell people, Look, don't tell anybody I did that. Instead of working the streets, instead he was living in humility and in many a times pushing away attention and glory and trying to just very humbly and quietly 
help people in unknown ways and just the meekness and the humility of Christ. Again, and even when he spoke to people, Jesus was never demanding. He was never forceful in the way that he spoke to people in his speech. What do we see him doing? Read the Gospels. He would simply speak the truth and then he would give people the freedom to decide. How many times do we see Jesus just saying, follow me? And then he'd just turn around and he'd walk the other way. Some would get up and follow him and, and others wouldn't. But he, but he wouldn't be forceful. He wasn't aggressive or assertive. He just was so meek. And, and he would honor, in a sense, the, the freedom of choice in people and just that gentleness, that humility of Jesus. is just such an amazing thing how he was never quarrelsome or contentious, spoke with incredible authority, incredible authority, but yet so gracious and humble in the way that he conducted himself. Verse 3 speaks of him as well, saying, A bruised reed he will not break. And a smoking flax he will not quench and will bring forth, again it says, justice for truth. So here this speaks of how Jesus, again, not only being incredibly loving, Jesus being gentle, but here I think verse 3 indicates to us how Jesus had a heart that was inclined towards restoration. When you look at these analogies that are given here in verse 3 regarding Jesus and his interaction with humanity... The Holy Spirit's trying to remind us how Jesus' heart and nature was inclined towards being tender. It was inclined towards being restorative. Notice it says of Jesus, a bruised reed he will not break. Now, again, if you picture the image in your mind here, he's trying to portray here like a, a reed. If you see you know, reeds that grow in a, a marshy area or maybe near the, the, the seashore area, and when a reed becomes maybe damaged, uh, and therefore it's bent over or it has the crease in it so that any time the wind would blow or any type of force would come against it or pressure, uh, it's damaged and it very easily bends under the pressure because it's been weakened because of the damage that it's sustained by being bruised or somehow wounded. And that bruised reed is unable to right itself or to repair itself. It's bruised. It can't restore itself. And the wonderful thing is what God's doing here is he's laying an analogy of human lives because sometimes that's what happens to people's lives. People's lives become bruised and wounded and damaged because of the effects of sin that influence all of our lives. And as a result of that, people become bruised and battered and people have problems in their lives. And Jesus wonderfully, instead of looking at a bruised reed or a destroyed or a ruined life that's been weakened by the effects of sin and saying, you know what, I'm disgusted with that, your life. And instead, Jesus doesn't do that. He would never cast people aside. In fact, those are the people he would go after. He would go after the people whose lives were most damaged and most wounded. And what would he want to do? He would want to restore those lives and to repair broken lives. And he has a restorative nature. It's the same thing indicated there in verse 3 where he says, "On a smoking flax, he will not quench. And the idea there of a smoking flax is like the wick of an oil lamp that was once burning brightly. And after a while, uh, the oil begins to run out and then it begins to burn very dimly and the fire's kind of going out and it's just sort of smoking and there's hardly any life left to the thing. And many a times when that was the case, if people wanted nothing to do with it, they would just, you know, they would just extinguish it. They would just grab hold of it and, and put it out. And again, the analogy of a human life that's struggling. Sometimes a life is burning bright for Christ 
and the fire of God is at work in somebody's heart and they're living for the Lord and they're filled with the Spirit. But then sometimes things begin to happen in our lives and distraction and we backslide or the you know we get sidetracked and then all of a sudden we're not burning as brightly for the Lord and, and we sense that there's a lack in our life and, and our fire begins to diminish. And the wonderful thing is that Jesus doesn't say, look, there's no hope left for you. <laughs> I mean, you've, you've, you've burned, you know, uh, you know, so brightly and now look at you. You know, you're just basically like a smoking waste of time. There's no hope left for your life. And instead of pushing a life like that aside, what does Jesus want to do? Jesus wants to, Jesus wants to refill a life like that with the oil of the Spirit and, and, and breathe fresh life upon someone like that and restore them back to a place where they're burning brightly once again. And these are just, again, analogies that remind us of the nature of what Jesus is like. That, that That's the way that he relates to people. I mean, quite honestly, in this room this evening, that's the way that he's related to some of us. That's a picture of what some of us were even when we met the Lord. We were a bruised, broken, bent over reed because of the life circumstances or things that went on in our life. And when Jesus found us, we were in a condition where we couldn't repair ourselves or restore ourselves. And we were bent over, broken, halfway destroyed. And nobody else was going to fix us. And quite honestly, probably nobody else wanted to fix us. And anybody else, if they would have had their way, probably would have said, look, you might as well just break it off and get rid of you. There's nothing worth left restoring there. But yet it was in that moment that we realized, look, but I heard that Jesus is loving and that he's a savior. And maybe there's still hope in him. And sometimes it's in that condition that we often find the Lord. And the wonderful thing is that even if after we're following the Lord, we become hurt or wounded or bruised, or we begin to just sort of start fizzling out to realize that Jesus' heart is always restoration. And so tenderly nursing us back to health and reviving our lives in the way that he would with such gentleness and commitment. Verse four, he then says of Jesus, he will not fail nor be discouraged. And I love those statements. He will not fail nor be discouraged till he's established justice in the earth and the coastlands shall wait for his law. So here verse four, I think speaks of the faithfulness of Jesus in his commitment and his ability. I, I love that term there, the way the Holy Spirit writes that out for us of Jesus. I want you to hear this of Jesus. Jesus will not fail nor be discouraged. Jesus will not fail nor be discouraged. Now, how often... Do we fail? How often do we fail? Constantly, continuously. And sometimes because we fail, we get really, really discouraged. And the devil then makes us all the more discouraged because of our failures. And sometimes those two are completely separate from one another. But oftentimes in life, we fail a whole lot. Oftentimes in life, we become very, very discouraged because of what we go through or experiences. But here's the thing the Bible is saying to us, but Jesus will never fail. Jesus will never fail. Jesus will never be discouraged. Here's what's astonishing. We don't see it in the English but the same, there's a play on words here in the Hebrew. Those same two terms, Jesus will not fail or be discouraged, are the same Hebrew terms that actually are used from back in verse two and uh, verse, excuse me, three, where it talks about the bruised reed and the smoldering wick that's about to go out. The Hebrew actually, as a play on words here, uses those same terms again of a bruised reed and a smoking flax when it says that Jesus will not fail or be discouraged. Same terms there. And what the Holy Spirit, I think, is trying to drive home to us is this. 
is though we often break under the pressure and the problems of sin, though we often burn out and get discouraged and have no hope left and there is not anything left in us, the wonderful thing is, is that Jesus will never break under pressure. And no matter how heavy the pressure or how difficult the situation, Jesus will never break under the weight of things and Jesus will never burn out. And I don't know about you, but that's a very encouraging thing for me. It's a very, very encouraging thing to me that know that despite my failures and despite the encouragement or discouragement at times that I can feel in the depth of my soul to realize that I serve a Savior and I have a Lord who loves me and who is faithful to me and he will never fail and he will never be discouraged. Meaning it does not matter what the condition of your life is. It doesn't matter what's going on in your life or what you're facing. Listen, Jesus won't fail you. He won't fail you. Other people may fail you. You may fail yourself. Lots of things in your life may fail, but Jesus will never fail. And you may be very discouraged at times and looking at the outlook of things sometimes may be very discouraged. But listen, Jesus never gets discouraged because Jesus knows the potential of his power and the potential of his love and the ability of his grace and his spirit to work in such a way so he never gets discouraged in any situation. So your situation is incredibly discouraging and you're weary and discouraged in your soul at times. But listen, the wonderful thing is that's okay. You can wrestle with that because Jesus is saying, don't, don't worry, I, I'm so encouraged. I know you're really discouraged, but I'm not going to fail. And I'm really encouraged because I'm God and I know what I can do still. I know what I'm able to accomplish still. And, and what a wonderful thing to realize that we serve a Jesus who is so faithful, so committed in that way. It says he's that faithful that he will not fail or be discouraged till he establishes justice in the earth. And when it says till he establishes justice in the earth, that, I believe that's speaking of a messianic ultimate fulfillment of the kingdom age until he establishes justice in this earth i think the holy spirit there is implying that he will never fail and he will never be discouraged until he fulfills the culmination of his full plan on this planet which is to one day return back to it and set up his kingdom and rule and reign and bring about justice and righteousness on this earth and rule over humanity the way that he always intended to and how wonderful to know that Jesus is that committed to us and has the power to fulfill those things for us. Now, turn with me, if you would, to Isaiah 53 before we go back into worship, because this, I think, is just a kind of a beautiful transition to ponder as we go back into worship and prepare our hearts to share communion. I want you to think about what we just read and how Jesus has lived and died and everything he's done is for our benefit spiritually as we ponder him and think about him tonight as we're worshiping and celebrating the Lord's Supper. But I want you to notice, I think, kind of an interesting correlation here with Isaiah 53, which is another prophecy of the sufferings of Christ and his death on our behalf. We read back in Isaiah 42, what? That Jesus would not bruise. Jesus would not bruise anyone. Jesus would never bruise anyone, but I want you to look what the Bible says regarding Jesus, that though he would not bruise anyone, Isaiah 53, 5 says, but he was wounded for our transgressions and he was bruised for our iniquities. Now, how wonderful is that? Jesus would never bruise or hurt anyone, but Jesus would allow himself to be bruised and himself to be punished. Why? So that the chastisement for our peace could be put upon him and that by his stripes we could be healed. 
like that bruised reed that's restored, or like that smoking flax that's fanned back into flame and revived once again very gently and faithfully. Again, we read back in Isaiah 42 that Jesus would not cry out in the streets, that he wouldn't be loud and self-asserting and drawing attention to himself, and, and that Jesus wouldn't cry out in a forceful way, but, but instead that he would remain silent. And look what the Bible reminds us of here in verse 6 and 7 of Jesus regarding his suffering it says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord's laid on him the iniquity of us all. And he was oppressed and afflicted. Look what it says. And yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and a sheep before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Again, do you know why Jesus was silent? Because the only thing he could have said if he would have opened his mouth was to say, I'm innocent. They're guilty. But instead, Jesus, though innocent, absorbed the pain, absorbed the punishment, absorbed the suffering, and silently endured the pain and the brutality and the suffering in his incredible love for us on our behalf in a redemptive way. And though everyone else was guilty and he was completely innocent, he opted to say, you know what? I'm not going to justify or defend my innocence. I'll just absorb the pain and punishment because I know that will help benefit us ultimately in the fulfillment of what he accomplished for us. What an incredible thing. Let's pray together as we...